I'd like to take you back to the year 1945. It was early morning. The people were on their way to work in this bustling Asian city of 350,000 people, a castle center, a commercial center, a military center. A number of little metallic birds had appeared over this town earlier that day, but suddenly, high in the sky, another metallic bird appeared, and out of the belly of this metallic bird, a dark, round shape dropped out of the air. August 6, 1945, the United States dropped an atomic bomb on the city of Hiroshima. The bomb was known as Little Boy, a uranium gun-type bomb that exploded with about 13 kilotons of force. At the time of the bombing, Hiroshima was home to 280,000 to 290,000 civilians, as well as 43,000 soldiers. Between 90,000 and 166,000 people are believed to have died from the bomb in the four-month period following the explosion. The U.S. Department of Energy has estimated that after five years, there were perhaps 200,000 or more fatalities as a result of the bombing, while the city of Hiroshima has estimated that 237,000 people were killed directly or indirectly by the bomb's effects, including burns, radiation sickness, and cancer. Pilot Paul Tibbets is quoted as saying, we turned back to look at Hiroshima. The city was hidden by that awful cloud, boiling up, mushrooming, terrible, and incredibly tall. No one spoke for a moment, then everyone was talking. I remember the co-pilot, Lewis, pounding my shoulder and saying, look at that, look at that, look at that. Bombardier Tom Faribi wondered about whether radioactivity would make us all sterile. Lewis said he could taste atomic fission. He said it tasted like lead. Tail gunner Robert Caron said the mushroom itself was a spectacular sight, a bubbling mass of purple-gray smoke, and you could see it had a red core in it, and everything was burning inside. As we got farther away, we could see the base of the mushroom, and below we could see what looked like a few hundred-foot layer of debris and smoke and what have you. I saw fire springing up in different places, like flames shooting up on a bed of coals. One more comment from a, well, there are a number of the witnesses. By the way, my quote here is from Atomic Heritage Foundation. Uh, they've got a lot of information. I won't read all these quotes because some of them are, uh, are pretty disquieting, but a particular Protestant minister commented, the feeling I had was that everyone was dead. The whole city was destroyed. I thought this was the end of Hiroshima, of Japan, of humankind. This was God's judgment on men. And you can read about that at uh, atomicheritage.org. From that moment forward, August 6, 1945, the world sat up and took notice. And I think you know what happened. Three days later, August 9, 1945, another bomb dropped on Nagasaki, on western Kyushu Island, capital of Nagasaki Prefecture, at the head of Nagasaki Bay, about three miles long and sheltered on all sides, one of the best natural harbors in Japan. The city has coal mining and fishing industries, shipyards, steelworks and plants, and manufacturing electrical equipment. It's the site of Nagasaki University. August 9, 1945, during World War II, three days after Hiroshima was destroyed, 
a U.S. Army Air Force plane rela- released an atomic bomb on Nagasaki. About one-third of the city was destroyed, and some 66,000 people were killed or injured. This was a very sobering time. Meanwhile, across the globe, there were people who were watching these things in the light of Bible prophecy and wondering what was going on, wondering whether the events in 1930s, the war in Europe, 1939 forward, leading up to the end of the war in the mid-1940s, and connecting these things with the prophecies of Daniel and Revelation. We all remember, of course, the history of one Bible preacher based in Oregon at the time who drew the only possible conclusion that I think could have been drawn by anyone looking at those events. He said, this is it. This is it. These are the events leading up to the return of Jesus Christ. And at the time, he thought that it would culminate in the establishment of God's kingdom on earth. In 1945, the war ended. And that particular individual said, began to say, it's going to happen again. Germany will rise again. There are going to be seven resurrections. This one was apparently the sixth resurrection. It will happen again. From that point forward, everybody began to realize how serious the times were. In the 1950s, the hydrogen bomb was developed. The atom bomb is simply a trigger for the hydrogen bomb. Now, the tons of the uh, uh, capacity to destroy are much, much higher. And then we fast forward some 56 years to September 11th, 2001. And I'm guessing every one of us, at least those of us who are old enough, remembers where we were when we learned about that attack on the Twin Towers in New York City that left 3,000 people dead. The first attack on the U.S. mainland. And that was a pretty sobering moment as well because we suddenly realized that non-state actors could bring about large numbers of deaths. Since then, in some ways, it's gotten even worse. The use of weapons of mass destruction by state actors and non-state actors, including in the Syrian civil war, where there have been weapons used that don't bear a lot of thinking about and weapons that don't cost a whole lot of money. Bad news. However, there's good news as well. And the good news is what you and I know, and that is that it's not going to end that way. It's not going to end that way. We know it won't end that way. And we know it won't end that way, not just because humanity is going to have good luck, but it's not going to end that way because of something that it says in a very famous prophecy, Matthew 24. Turn with me, if you would, please, to Matthew 24, the Olivet Prophecy where there's a very important statement which tells us it's not going to end that way. The latest issue of Discern magazine features the subject of hope. Here's hope. Matthew 24, verse 22. Matthew 24, verse 22 talks about the time that is yet ahead of us. And Jesus here said, unless those days were shortened, no flesh would be saved. But for the elect's sake, those days will be shortened. I've always found that phrase pretty striking. For the elect's sake. For the sake of the elect, those days are going to be cut short. And if it were not for this group of people referred to as the elect, well, those days could go on. And it could have been, could be the end of humanity 
were it not for the fact that God is interested in a group of people, a group of people who are different, a group of people who have a pivotal and important role in the plan of God. In the remainder of the sermon, what I'd like to do, for those of you who are note-takers, is examine three aspects of this. Number one, who are the elect? Who are the elect? Number two, how did they come to be the elect? How did the elect come to be the elect? And number three, what is the role of these people, referred to in the Bible as the elect, in God's plan? Who are they? How did they come to be the elect? What is their role in God's plan? Who are the elect? Well, if you do a dictionary search about the elect, here's the quote from the Webster's New Collegiate Dictionary. The elect, from the Latin electus, choice. Number one, carefully selected. Carefully selected. Definition, uh, synonym, chosen. Definition number two. Chosen for salvation through divine mercy. Definition number three, chosen for office or position, but not yet installed, as in the president-elect. Elect, noun plural, one chosen or set apart as by divine favor, the plural, a select or exclusive group of people, related to the word eclectic. He has eclectic tastes in music. You should see his collection of music. Eclectic, adjective from the Greek eclectikos. Definition number one, selecting what appears to be best in various doctrines, methods, or styles. Number two, composed of elements drawn from various sources. So the dictionary gives us the definition of the elect. But the Bible adds something. That's quite a bit, in fact. And it tells us that these people called the elect in the Bible were not chosen because of them by themselves. They're the best on the face of planet Earth. Let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians 1, where we read a little bit about the elect. 1 Corinthians 1, verses 27 and 28. Let's pick it up in verse 26, because I think verse 26 has an important thought here as well. 1 Corinthians 1, verse 26. For you see your calling, brethren. Do we? I hope we do. We should. That not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. God didn't call a group of people because they were the best, in one sense, ahead of their calling. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty. The reason for this, so that those people who come to be among this group of the elect can't say, I did this. I brought myself to this place. Verse uh, 28, and the base things of the world the things which are and the things which are despised, God has chosen, and the things which are not to bring to nothing the things that are. Verse 29, that no flesh should glory in his presence. The chosen, the eclectoi. People who are called of God, and God expects those people to remain humble and glorify God and do what we love to do so frequently and talk about how we got here, what God did in our lives. I think it's important that we rehearse those stories from time to time. So we're not chosen because we're the best. 1 Peter 1, verse 2. 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 2 also refer, refers to this group of people. 
Peter, Peter 1, verse 2, Peter writes to a group of people in the dispersion in Asia, Asia Minor, there in verse 1. Verse 2, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in sanctification of the Spirit for obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. The elect, they're chosen according to foreknowledge. Now, the foreknowledge is not individual. The foreknowledge is that God knew there would be a group of people defined as the elect, that they have this role to play in his plan. And over the page in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. 1 Peter 2, verses 9 and 10. Again, it emphasizes the fact that God did this. God brought the elect together, made it possible for the elect to be the elect. 1 Peter 2, verses 9 and 10. Peter writes, but you are a chosen generation. You've been chosen. We often say people come into the church or they're called of God. They don't join the church, and that's true, of course. But you're a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people. That's quite a list of titles, isn't it? Quite a lot to read there. That you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Verse 10, who once were not a people, but you're now the people of God, who had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. God brought us together. You know, if we'd met one another before we became part of the church and passed one another on the street, we probably would not have had that much in common. But then God called the elect and made them his people and gave them a job to do. There in verse 10, by the way, Peter is quoting from the book of Hosea. He quotes out of the book of Hosea. He also alludes back, and we won't take the time to go there. Maybe we will. Exodus 19. Exodus 19, verses 5 and 6. Interesting wording similarity here. Exodus 19, verses 5 and 6. The wording is very similar. Exodus 19, verse 5. Now, therefore, if you obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be a special treasure to me above all people, for the earth is mine. This is God speaking through Moses to national Israel. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words which you shall speak to the children of Israel. So then there's a sense in which the elect, the church of God, substitutes for, in some sense, I want to be careful how I phrase this, in some ways, for national Israel. There's a sense in which, as it says, Matthew says, Matthew 21, verse 43, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you, Jesus said to the people of the physical nation back then, and given to a people who will inherit the kingdom of God. It's an allusion to the church. Matthew 21, verse 43. Matthew chapter 21 and verse 43. Matthew 21, verse 43. Therefore, I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken from you and given to a nation bearing the fruits of it. That's an allusion to the church. We, the elect, we hope we are, are those who bear the fruits of it. 
who bear the fruits of the kingdom of God and demonstrate something. So God called a group of people in whom he is to be glorified, people who are to reflect his character, people who are to reflect the way of life that he wants people to live. Not one physical nation, not one racial group, not one group defined culturally, but uh, people who had, what was the term that Richie used, the agnosia lifted, the uh, spiritual inability to read, to see, the visual inability to take it in, people who had that taken away, removed from them. So scales kind of got lifted off their eyes. Romans chapter 11 makes the same point. Romans 11. The elect. How did they become the elect? Romans 11, first few verses. Romans 11, verse 1. Paul writes, I say then, has God cast away his people? There's a section of scripture that talks about the fact that God is not done yet with physical Israel. He's working primarily with spiritual Israel, but he's not done. He's not through with physical Israel. Certainly not. Paul says, I also am an Israelite of the seed of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not cast away his people whom he foreknew. Don't you know what the scripture says of Elijah? How he pleads with God against Israel saying, Lord, they've killed your prophets and torn down your altars and I alone am left and they seek my life. You remember the story of Elijah stuck in the cave, thinking he's all alone, getting a little bit moody. I alone am left. There's nobody else around. But what does the divine response say to him? Verse 4, I've reserved for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the, bowed the knee to Baal. The 7,000 who refused to bow the knee to Baal. Verse 5, even so then at this present time there is a remnant according to the election of grace. Look at the way it's phrased. There's a remnant. The doctrine of the remnant runs all the way through the Bible. Little group of people who swim against the current, how did they get to be there? It's according to the election of grace. You didn't earn your calling. I didn't earn my calling. It's an election of grace. Verse 6, and if by grace, then it is no longer of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. But if it is of works, it is no longer grace. Otherwise, work is no longer work. God conferred it on this group of people. Verse 7, what then? Israel has not obtained what it, what it seeks, but the elect have obtained it, and the rest were blinded, as we heard in the sermonette. The elect, a little group of people, God acting on behalf of this little group of people. How did they come to be the elect? How did you get to be here? How did I get to be here? I want to turn to a scripture that we're very familiar with, but I'd like to dig in maybe just a little deeper than we often do. John 6, verse 44. John chapter 6 and verse 44. We've read this many, many times. I know that. John 6, verse 44. You can probably recite it from memory. I think it's on the scripture cards for FI students. John 6, verse 44 tells us, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. As Richie Averett said in the sermonette, you've got to have that spiritual blindness lifted unless the Father draws him and I will raise him up at the last day. You get to be part of the elect because God did something in your life. He did something in your life and he did something in my life. And there's a very interesting word that's used here, translated draws. 
draws. It has a very interesting connotation in the Greek. And I'll give you the Greek word. It's helkuo, H-E-L-K-U-O. And it's used uh, about 12 times, I think, in the New Testament. I was checking this in my office yesterday. I think it's about 12 uses in the New Testament. I'd like to show you a few of these examples. Let's go forward to John 21 and verse 6. Helkuo, to draw, to drag. John 21, verse 6. I'm going to read the same word. John 21, verse 6. He said to them, Cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you will find some, some fish. So they cast, and now they were not able to draw it in because of the multitude of fish. Yes, it's the same word in the Greek. It's the Greek word, helkuo. It's the same word. Draw it in. The action of dragging in a dragnet. Acts 16, verse 19. Acts 16, verse 19. This is the action that's described in John 6, 44. Acts 16, verse 19. Paul and Silas imprisoned here. They got themselves in trouble. When her masters saw that their hope of profit was gone because of the fortune-telling and the idols and so on, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to the authorities. Same word. Same word as in John 6, verse 44. They dragged them into the marketplace. It almost implies against their will, right? Of course, when you talk to some members of the church, they'll express that. I wasn't looking for anything. It was, I wasn't planning this. I didn't even want to accept it. I tried not to accept it, but it became clear to me. James 2 and verse 6. James chapter 2 and verse 6. James 2 and verse 6. The same word once again in the Greek. James 2 and verse 6. James writes, but you have dishonored the poor man. He's arguing against respective persons here. Do not the rich oppress you and drag you into the courts. The rich were oppressing and mistreating the poor, and they were dragging people. Yes, it's the same word in the Greek, helkuo. So it's really quite interesting when you do a study on that particular word. How did the elect get to be the elect? They were dragged. They were drawn. Helkuo. All right, I'm about to do something that I often do in the class and give you a list of scriptures. And often when I do this with the students, they begin looking from side to side because I give the list of scriptures too fast. But I thought it would, might be interesting for you to have the list of scriptures, a number of the scriptures in the New Testament where this word is used. So I'll give you the list. We've already cited John 6:44, also chapter 12, verse 32. One, two, three, four times, I believe, in John's gospel. Uh, chapter 12, verse 32. Chapter 18, verse 10. And chapter 21, verse 6 in John's Gospel. 644, 1232, 18, verse 10, 21, verse 6. In the book of Acts twice, Acts 16, verse 19, which we read, Acts 21, verse 30, which we didn't read, and James chapter 2 and verse 6. So how did they get to be the elect? God dragged them. God drew them. He brought them. And it's the Father who calls He's not completely distanced from the process of bringing the elect to be the elect, to be part of the body of Christ. He drags them. He calls them, turns them over to the Son, puts the Son in charge, the head of the church. Jesus Christ, the Son, is the Savior. 
He's the good shepherd. He's the head of the church. And so we read the, the, the phrase in the New Testament over and over again about being in Christ. What does it mean? It means that Jesus Christ is our Savior. He's the head of the church. He's the one whom we look to for our leadership. God the Father initiated it and then brought them, the elect, and placed them under Jesus Christ, who is the head of the church. God the Father has made him all things as head of the church, in charge of the church. So, a little bit of information about how they got to be the elect. Question number two. What is the role of the elect in God's plan? What is the role of the elect in God's plan? And I'd like to go back to a couple of passages in the Old Testament to describe the role of the elect in the plan of God. Let's go back to the book of Ezekiel. The book of Ezekiel. Ezekiel chapter 9. Ezekiel chapter 9. Where we've got a man, a prophet of God, in the exile. A man who was given a vision, and he was taken in vision to Jerusalem, and he saw things that horrified him. It bothered him. The vision took him bit by bit into the temple. He begins on the outside of the temple, and then an angel leads him further and further and further in until eventually he's right in the heart of the temple, the center of worship in Jerusalem, and he's shocked. He sees the evil, and he sighs. Ezekiel chapter 9, the role of the elect in God's plan. This will actually bear on that subject. Verse 1, Ezekiel 9, verse 1. Then he, this angel, called out in my hearing with a loud voice, saying, Let those who have charge over the city draw near, each with a deadly weapon in his hand. He gets kind of vision of what's going on in the angelic realm. And suddenly six men came from the direction of the upper gate, which faces north, each with his battle axe in his hand. So here's Ezekiel. He's seeing things going on in the temple in Jerusalem, and he sees these six men, angelic creatures, with axes in their hands. One man among them was clothed with linen and had a writer's inkhorn at his side. It's generally thought that this is number seven, the one man among them. There was not six total, there was seven. But whatever the case, we've got someone, we've got one man among them, and he's kind of unusual because he's not carrying an axe here. He's carrying an inkhorn. Think about an inkhorn for a moment. He's got something maybe on, the, on his belt, and it's a, it's a horn containing ink, and he's about to use the ink to write something. And what he's going to write is very, very important. He has a writer's inkhorn in his hand, in his side, and they went in and they stood beside the bronze altar. He's looking at things going on in Jerusalem, in the center of worship. In, back in chapter 8, we won't go all the way through chapter 8, but uh, Ezekiel was also given a vision in which he saw some terrible things going on. He watches as they're kind of uh, worshiping the sun and they've got scarabs and beetles and all kinds of things there in the temple in Jerusalem. And that vision in chapter 8 really seems to be the trigger for what we see in chapter 9. In chapter 9, in vision, Ezekiel is shown what is going on in Jerusalem. We've got this one angelic individual with an inkhorn and he's about to do something with the ink. Verse 3, 
Now the glory of God of Israel had gone up from the cherub, where it had been, to the threshold of the temple. What Ezekiel will see in this section of scripture is the glory of God. It's it's an amazing section of scripture. It describes God on a kind of a platform with the wheels within wheels, the kind of gyroscope effect. Four wheels within wheels under the platform. And on top, there's this resplendent glory of God putting off all of this uh, uh, resplendent, powerful light. And God, in this vision, is there on top of the platform. And what happens? Because of what what is there in chapter 8, because of all of the terrible things uh, going on in chapter 8, the presence of God begins to lift off and begins to leave Jerusalem. Continuing in that verse, and he called to the man clothed with linen who had the writer's inkhorn at his side. He calls him. And he says, okay, now there's work to do. Now this individual with the inkhorn is about to do something very, very important. He is about to identify the elect. He is about to identify the remnant. Look at what he says. The Lord said to him, verse 4, go through the midst of the city, through the midst of Jerusalem, and put a mark on the foreheads of the men who sigh and cry over all the abominations that are done within it. So this angelic creature with the ink horn goes through Jerusalem and he picks people out. And these are the people who sigh and cry, the ones who are troubled by the things going on. I was having a conversation with one member of the church prior to services commenting about how bad things are. They are they are given this sign. The sign here is a positive sign, by the way. It's not like the mark of the beast in the book of Revelation. It's a positive sign. So actually, it's going to go on the forehead. And what it is here in Ezekiel chapter 9, it's in fact the last letter of the Hebrew alphabet. The Hebrew alphabet, as our FI students know and graduates know, and I think many of you know, the Hebrew alphabet has 22 consonants in it. And the last consonant is referred to as the letter Tav, T-A-V or T-A-U. And anciently, in uh, the ancient form of Hebrew, it apparently looked like a kind of an X shape. But in modern Hebrew, it looks a little different. Uh, I won't try to describe it for you, but it's the last letter in the Hebrew alphabet. If you want a cheat sheet for the Hebrew alphabet, Psalm 119 gives you all the 22 letters of the Hebrew alphabet. Anyway, what he's told here in verse 4, Tavify. In the Hebrew, the mark is the letter Tav, last letter. Last letter of the 22. Why? Because they're the remnant. This is the little group of people who are troubled by what's going on in Jerusalem. They don't like it. They know Jerusalem has gone bad, that the religious authorities have turned the people in the wrong direction. And so this angelic creature with the inkhorn goes through Jerusalem and he puts a mark on the forehead. It's a positive mark. It's the letter Tav. And these people sigh and cry over all the abominations done within it. I always found that that verse very important because it tells us something about us, our role, about the remnant. We shouldn't be detached from what's going on around us, but we should see what's going on around us and sigh and cry when we realize the seriousness of the situation that we're in and how badly things have gone within our culture and some of the beliefs that have become so commonplace and accepted. It should trouble us. We can't spend all of our lives sighing and crying. We don't become kind of frozen in place and unable to do anything because of our emotions. But we're not so detached that we say, well, you know, they're just a bunch of sinners. They've got what's coming to them. No, it's a bit more to it than that. 
They sigh and cry over everything done in Jerusalem. Then verse 5, verse 5. To the others he said in my hearing, go after him through the city and kill. Do not let your eyes spare nor have any pity. Utterly slay old and young men, maidens and little children and women, but do not come near anyone in whom, on whom is the mark, the Hebrew letter Tav, and begin at my sanctuary. The judgment begins at the center. Judgment begins at the center, the people who are responsible. So this is in vision. It's a vision of what's going on in the angelic realm, and it's an explanation of why Jerusalem fell because of all its abominations. But there's that little group, the little group with this Hebrew letter written on their foreheads. You're part of the remnant. You're part of the elect. You're people who sigh and cry. Verse uh, 7, end of verse 6, so they began with the elders who were before the temple. Judgment comes on the leaders first. And he said to them, verse 7, defile the temple and fill the courts with the slain. Go out. And they went out and killed in the city. Verse 8, so it was that while they were killing them, I was left alone. This is Ezekiel speaking. And I fell on my face and I cried out and I said, Ah, Lord God, will you destroy all the remnant of Israel in pouring out your fury on Jerusalem? Ezekiel then uses that same word, the remnant, a little group of people. There are not many left. There are not many left. And he intercedes for them. And then God gives his answer to Ezekiel. In verse 9, this is serious business. God has forsaken the land, and the Lord does not see. But again, the role of this little group of people is very important. And then verse 11 in the same chapter. Just then the man clothed with linen who had the inkhorn at his side reported back and said, I have done as you commanded me. So the angelic creature who's got the ink horn and the writing instrument, has gone through the city and he has identified those who are going to have this Hebrew letter on the forehead because they're the ones who sigh and cry and it bothers them. It troubles them deeply. Let's go to read the story of another prophet back in the book of Genesis in chapter 18. Genesis chapter 18 One of the interesting things in the Bible is that really all the way through the Bible, this theme of a a remnant, a little group of people, runs all the way through. It's there in the book of Isaiah. It's there in the book of Jeremiah. Genesis 18, Abraham sent to Sodom. Genesis 18, beginning in verse 16, then the men arose from there and looked towards Sodom, and Abraham went with them to send them on their way. And the Eternal said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I'm doing, since Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. I have known him, verse 19, in order that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord to do righteousness and justice. God made himself known to Abraham. He removed that spiritual blindness so that Abraham would teach his children, and so it would get passed on from generation to generation. Verse 20, the Lord said, because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great because their sin is very grave. I will go down now and see whether they've done altogether according to the outcry against it that has come to me. And if not, I will know. You wonder who's crying out. Who's crying out? Was it the angels? Was it a little group of people? Was it a small group of people? Was there anyone in Sodom 
So then, of course, I think you know what follows after that. The men turned away from Sodom. And in verse 26, this is where Abraham begins to negotiate with God. And he says, look, maybe there are a few righteous people here. Is there anyone righteous here in Sodom? If I find, verse 26, if I find in Sodom 50 righteous within the city, then I will spare all the place for your sakes. And Abraham then negotiates, bargains. I'm but dust and ashes. I've taken it upon myself to speak to the Lord. Suppose there were five less than the 50 righteous. Would you destroy all of the city for lack of five? And God then says, if I find 45, I will not destroy it. And Abraham, bit by bit, you know the story. I'm not going to read all the way through it. Bit by bit, Abraham gets a little bit more bold, a little bit more bold. He goes from 50 down to 45, down from 40. And then he really begins to be be a little more audacious and begins to come down by tens. Down to 30, down to 20, down to 10. Whittled down all the way down until verse uh, 32. Then he said, let not the Lord be angry and I will speak but once more. Suppose 10 should be found there. And he said, I will not destroy it for the sake of 10. I can find 10 righteous individuals in Sodom. I won't destroy it. And he said, I will not destroy it for the, for the sake of 10. So the Lord went his way as soon as he'd finished speaking with Abraham. And Abraham returned to his place. And the two angels then came down and saw the depravity of Sodom. There was no remnant. There was no remnant. Verse Verse, let's drop down in chapter uh, 19. Genesis 19 and uh, verse 14. Genesis 19, verse 14. So Lot went out and he spoke to his sons-in-law who had married his daughters and said, get up, get out of this place for the Lord will destroy this city. But to his sons-in-law, he seemed to be joking. They didn't take it seriously. The morning dawned, the angels urged Lot to hurry, saying, Arise, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, lest you be consumed in the punishment of the city. And while he lingered, you ever wondered about that? I've always wondered about that. He lingered. Lot lingered. He's going to be grabbed out of the city. The New Testament refers to him as a righteous man. Peter calls him righteous Lot. And yet he lingered and had to be grabbed by the hand and again dragged out of Sodom. While he lingered, the men took hold of his hand, his wife's hand, and the hands of his two daughters, the eternal being merciful to him. And they brought him out and set him outside the city. So it came to pass when they brought them outside, he said, escape for your life. Do not look behind you, nor stay anywhere in the plain. Escape to the mountains, lest you be destroyed. And then Lot also begins to bargain, and he stays a little bit closer. Can the remnant, can the elect get a little bit too attached to the culture and the world around them? Isn't that part of our struggle as the remnant, as the elect, as a little group of people in our own lives to say, no, I don't accept the standards of the world around us so that we don't have to be dragged out of the city when that moment of danger comes. Righteous Lot, he's called. Righteous Lot, and he had to be dragged out. And then Sodom is burned to a cinder, like those Japanese cities at the end of the Second World War. Isaiah 1, verse 9. Isaiah chapter 1 and verse 9. 
Isaiah 1 and verse 9, an amazing thing that it says here. Isaiah 1 verse 9, unless the Lord of hosts had left us a very small remnant, we would have become like Sodom. We would have been made like Gomorrah. Unless God had left a very small remnant, we would have become like Sodom and Gomorrah. Hope. Hope because of the remnant. The most recent um, copy of Discern magazine revolves around the subject of hope. It's because of the role of the remnant, the role of the elect, that there is hope. What God tells us is that we need to continue to be the elect. We need to be united. We need to be committed to a cause of being the people of God. The church of God has a cause. The church of God has work to do. Sometimes I look at some of the things that have happened in the church, and I think perhaps we've lost sight of those facts, that we need to be together, that we need to be doing something together. Being in the church is not just choosing among some kind of a buffet. Being in the church is doing something together and getting a work done together. The work that God has given us to do is important. The role of the remnant is important. I'd like to go to the last prophet of the Old Testament, to the book of Malachi. The book of Malachi. Let's go to Malachi and pick it up in chapter 3. Malachi chapter 3, and verse 16, Malachi 3, verses 16 and 17. Malachi chronologically is the last prophet in the Old Testament. We're at the end of the Old Testament. Malachi 3, verse 16. Malachi says, then those who feared the Lord spoke to one another. What are they talking about? A little bit of encouragement, a little bit of a reminder. You're part of the elect. God called you. He brought you here. They spoke to one another, and the Lord listened and heard them. So a book of remembrance was written before him for those who fear the Lord and who meditate on his name. There's a book written before God for those who meditate on his name. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, on the day that I make them my jewels. Isn't this a wonderful section of scripture? God is kind of building a necklace. Jewels those who are the ones that he will spare. And I will spare them as a man spares his own son who serves him. Then you shall again discern between the righteous and the wicked, between one who serves God and one who does not serve him. In the fullness of time, these things become very clear. These things become very clear. And then Malachi chapter 4, Malachi chapter 4, right at the end of the Old Testament is the famous Elijah prophecy. Malachi 4, let's pick it up in verse, let's read the whole, chap, the whole chapter, it's a short chapter. Malachi 4, verse 1. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, and all the proud, yes, and all who do wickedly will be stubble. And the day which is coming shall burn them up, says the Lord of hosts, that will leave them neither root nor branch. But to you who fear my name... The sun of righteousness will arise with healing in his wings. You ever had a cut on your hand or in some part of the flesh and you get out in the sun and it heals better. And you shall go out and grow like fat, like stall-fed calves. You shall trample the wicked. They shall be ashes under the soles of your feet. And then verse 4. Remember the law of Moses, my servant, which I commanded him in Horeb for all Israel with the statutes and the judgments. Both the book of Malachi, the last book in the Old Testament, and the book of Revelation end up with a reminder of God's law. Verse 5, 
Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. Who fulfills this? Elijah is yet to come. Was it John the Baptist? Is there another fulfillment of it? Answer, yes. This is one of those prophecies that have multiple fulfillments. The Baptist fulfilled it, but he didn't restore all things. There's still more to be done. I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. You know what the Jews do at the Jewish Passover service? They um, put a glass of wine on the table. And that glass of wine is one that is not to be touched during the Jewish uh, Seder service. You leave it there. And that glass of wine is the cup for Elijah. In fact, religious Jews leave the door open, the door to their front, the front door to their house, leaving it open for Elijah. Elijah is coming before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And what will he do? Verse 6. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the earth with cherem. Is an interesting Hebrew word. The last Hebrew word in our Bibles in the Old Testament, as we've got it arranged, is a very strong word. And the word here is cherem. The work of Elijah, our work, the role of the elect, the role of the remnant is to do something. Turn the hearts of the children to the fathers and the hearts of the fathers to the children. And were it not, were it not for the role of that little group of people, referred to all the way through the Bible, that little thread that runs all the way through, God would then come and strike the earth with a harem. A harem. Joshua chapter 6, we won't turn there, but Jericho was under the harem. It was under the ban. It's a word that shows up a number of times in the Bible. It's a powerful word. Were it not for this little group of people, there would be no hope. Were it not for a little group of people in the work of Elijah, the end of humanity could come. But because of this remnant, this tiny group of elect, we're not all going to die in a nuclear attack of worldwide proportions. There is hope. God is going to bring humanity through, and he's going to do it for the elect's sake.